Matthew 25, 31 says, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall find, sorry, shall be offended because of me this night. That's Matthew 26, sorry. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, that's better, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee an hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Let's pray. Father, again, as we turn to your word, we just want to thank you for it and ask that you would just guide um, my thoughts and my words, Lord, this morning, that uh, the things that I say would be honoring to you, that they would be a help to those listening this morning, Lord, and just ask that you would prepare each of our hearts, Lord, to receive whatever it is that you have for us this morning, that we would learn more of you and draw closer to you through our time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, we're still in the, the same chapter we've been in the last few weeks. This topic hasn't changed, and he starts, Jesus starts each section with that reminder of what our whole context is here. So verse 31 opens with that, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. And it's good to remember that this also happens, um, as we saw in the previous chapter, um, verse 29 and 30, it says, at the end of the tribulation of those days. This is at the end of the tribulation that each of these things happens. And so 
that's our context. That's how we have to look at these things to understand really who and who's being talked to and in what, the, in what context. I just want to, I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at the context here and then I'm going to try to move to something a little bit more practical as we, as we go on here this morning. But first of all, when we compare Scripture with Scripture and trying to look at where this fits, how this fits, and, and what everything goes together. Remember, Jesus comes back, and there's some terrible things take place. There's a, and there's other places. There's, we've read some of it in Matthew 24, and we can go to various parts of the Old Testament, speak prophetically of it, and then we can go to Revelation to see other aspects of it. And this morning I want to turn to Revelation and go to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. This story, as we've read it from what Jesus described, just a reminder, is, he says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, he shall sit on the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another. There's a judgment taking place at what appears to be among the events of that second coming, very short period of time, and looks like previous at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign. And so there's what it appears in, in what Matthew 25 says. We get into Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, nor had received his mark upon their foreheads were in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so, the thing that I would point out here, at verse 4, it says that there's thrones, and they sat upon them. And it appears that it's the people who had been beheaded for the sake of the gospel during the tribulation time are those that are sitting on these thrones and they're judging. When we put the two things together, they're judging the nations. I had to think about this because as I've been taught it over the years, I just kind of felt like or got the impression that at Jesus' second coming and there's that battle of Armageddon and this remember the blood up to the horse's bridles in this valley and I'm thinking like everybody who isn't a tribulation saint hadn't turned to Christ, was like destroyed at that time. But that's not what it says. What it says is that, if I should be going there, but it says that it's the kings, the rulers, and their armies 
are gathered together for that battle. It's not everybody. There's a lot of other people who survived through that tribulation period. And it's the rest of those people, the nations. So the, the kings, like the rulers, and their armies are the ones that gather together for that battle. And Jesus comes and destroys them at his second coming. But there's these other people that are still there. And remember, Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign with a rod of iron. <laughs> He's going to rule over this earth through that thousand years. And there's people that survived through that tribulation period. And some strange things that, as Jesus describes this, if you're, again, if you're trying to put that and make it sound like us, I see a problem. And the problem I see is what I see going on in our world of people who call themselves Christians They quote places like this in Matthew 25 as if that is what being a Christian is about. It's about feeding the hungry, clothing those that need clothes, giving shelter, ministering to the sick, ministering to the needy in these ways, providing for the physical needs of people less fortunate than us. That's really what Jesus describes here, right? And the judgment is based on whether or not they did those things. But what was the consequence? The very last verse in Matthew 25 or says, those that didn't do those things shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. So is my salvation based on whether or not I feed the poor? <laughs> and provide food and clothing for those people. That's what this... There is not one mention in this passage about faith in Christ's death on the cross. There's no... The only criteria of whether a person went into everlasting life eternal or into everlasting punishment is whether or not they did these good works. Good works is required during the tribulation period for that seven-year period. But I can assure you that me and you doing those things is not the criteria that gets us into heaven when we face God. This isn't talking directly to you and I at this point as to this is how we're going to be judged. Because that's not how we're going to be judged. And we could go through a lot of other scripture to show that. But you see, this is its very consistent. Remember Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. If you remember, in that parable, we have the seed sown and it starts to sprout. And the workers go and come back and say to the master, there's somebody has sown tares, some kind of weed, in with the wheat. And do you want us to go and get rid of it? And he says, no, you've got to wait. Otherwise, you'll tear up both and you're going to ruin the harvest. You've got to wait till harvest time. And then you go and gather the tares first and then we'll gather the harvest. 
Well, I mentioned before that it's kind of backwards to, to how we think some of these events are going to happen. But the tares are gathered together and burned in a fire. And Matthew 24 mentions that as well. And then also, when you get into Revelation, it talks about the same thing, the gathering together. I wonder if I can find this. I'm sure I wrote down the references, but I can, I'm not seeing them on my page. But we get into to this passage in Revelation, and it talks about the eagles gathering together, preparing for this battle. It's probably in that chapter 19 here. Yeah, it's right in front of me. Verse 17, chapter 19, verse 17 in Revelation says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And just to read the part that I described, it says, And, and I saw the beast, it's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which was deceived, which, with which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. This is that first step. This is the tares were gathered together, and there's a battle and a destruction, and the fowls are filled with their flesh. We see that mentioned in, in Matthew 24, and it matches what was in Matthew 13 in the wheat and the tares. It's that first stage in Jesus' second coming. There's a lot of destruction, but then there's this judgment of the nations. And this criteria, what did you do? Did you, did you feed the sick? Did you feed, <laughs> clothe those that needed clothing? What a strange thing. And we get into, if we go back to Matthew 25, he describes it in the context of a shepherd dividing sheep and goats. And he says in verse 33, you set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And notice that the sheep that are on the right hand they enter the kingdom. <laughs> They're welcomed into that kingdom. But you know, these aren't the rulers of the kingdom. <laughs> these are subjects of that kingdom. We looked in Revelation, and those that rule seem to be those who were killed, who lost their head during that tribulation period for the sake of the gospel. There's also a couple of references to us during this time before the tribulation. And I don't think we're all going to rule. I've always had that impression, oh, if you're, if you're a Christian today, you're going to rule during the, the tribulation, or during the 
thousand-year reign of Christ, that kingdom period. But I don't think it's necessarily, I couldn't find anything that says we all will. I found a couple of verses that say that some of us will. Second Timothy chapter 2 makes one reference. Second Timothy 2 verse 12 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. I won't bother reading the rest there. It changes topic as far as that part goes. But if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. There's a criteria attached to the reigning with Christ <coughs> is if we suffer. And I don't know, if you are lived in North America your whole life, chances of you really suffering, I'm not sure if what we go through would qualify Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, says something similar. We went through quite a bit of study in our Thursday Bible study on this and who these people are, and I'm fairly certain that we're talking about people who have been resurrected prior to the tribulation, which would be people living today are those 24 elders that are gathered around the throne. It talks of them from every tribe and nation and tongue. In verse 10, it says, And he has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And so there's a certain group, at least, of people from the church today that will be ruling and reigning with Christ during that time. I'm not so sure that all of us will be, though. I could be wrong. But the sheep in Matthew 25 aren't ruling and reigning. They're the ones that get ruled and reigned over. Which makes me wonder, because there's no talk of faith, in Christ, no talk of the gospel in this. It makes me wonder if these people were actually believers or were just sympathetic <laughs> to the believers. And now they're given an opportunity. I'm not 100% sure on that. There's no, there's no reference to anything else about them. But that would make me make sense to me that that's why these are being ruled over is because they need that, because they hadn't come to faith in Christ prior to this point. I'm not 100% sure, don't quote me. The other group, though, the goats, that are on the left hand, when we get to verse 46, speaks of the goats, and it says, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Now, there's no question on this one, is it? <laughs> If they've denied Christ, if they've denied doing the things that Christ instructs, if they've had no care for the well-being of others, and maybe it should mention, in this passage, he's actually fairly specific about who they're to be care, taking care of. It says, unto these the least of my brethren. <laughs> 
That's like people who actually have faith in Christ, right? That's his brethren. There's a specific criteria on that. It's not just in general. One of the... I was going through some of the mail that comes to the church this week, (laughs) and there's mission organizations that I've never heard of send oodles of stuff, and they're just blanket to any any and every church they can come up with, right? But one one of the local ones, as I'm ripping stuff up and throwing it into the fire to burn. <laughs> right on the top of one of the things, it said what their mission is. And their mission is to feed the hungry without any question or judgment on, on them. It's like, there's, there's, we don't ask questions, we don't, we don't judge, we don't criticize, nothing. We're just, we're just here to feed you. And you know, I've been in a number of churches over the years, and in many of those churches, I would hear of mission trips being organized where they're gathering a group of people together to go on a missions trip to some place that's poor and needy. And always the point of that missions trip was to do some kind of humanitarian aid in that community. One, one was building a handrail up the side of a mountain. Um, some of it's like building housing, you know, building a, whatever, like just infrastructure, digging wells, you name it. But just doing good works, helping out those who need. It's as if they're trying to fulfill what Jesus says here in Matthew 25. But that's not... <laughs> It's not the gospel. It's not the purpose of what we're, who we are supposed to be. Like, yes, we're supposed to be that. But that has nothing to do with salvation. And so if those people are trying to earn their salvation, that's not how they're going to accomplish it. And by providing the physical needs of other people and yet never opening their mouth and giving the gospel, they've done nothing good for those people either. <laughs> There's no real benefit from a little bit of physical help. And most often that little bit of physical help is so temporary that it has made no real impact in most of those lives. It just makes us feel better as a rich North American that you know, I, did, I went to this mission trip and we can brag about where we've been and what we've done. But did you give the gospel? <laughs> did you change anyone's eternal destiny? That would be more important. I have no problem with people doing good things as an avenue to get into some community, but if there's never an intent to give the gospel message along with the good works that we're doing, there's no real, there's no eternal value in those things. So, should we be doing these things? Of course, right? Is it wrong? And that's a, that's the hard part, right? Like, I'll stand here and I'll criticize, whatever. I'll say that that shouldn't be the the focus of our of our mission work. But does that mean we shouldn't do that mission work? 
No. It's like, just previous, we're reading, and Jesus is talking with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's got the multitude there. And he says to them about the scribes and Pharisees, their tithing of their, their mint and their anise, and like all these minute, the littlest details. They're making sure they tithe of the spices and which means like they're tithing of all of their income, of all their grains and all of their goods, whatever form of income it is, they tithe a tenth of that. They make sure they give it and just like to the minutest detail. But Jesus criticizes and says, you've made the rest of the law of no effect because you've got traditions that override the, the actual law that God gave you. And he gives some examples. But he says, this ought you to have done and not left the other undone. And so that's what I, my point is, is you ought to have given the gospel to the people that you went to do ministry to. But don't leave the good works out of it either. Don't, don't give off helping the people. Then we can go back, I think it's in James, somewhere in that area, where he talks about when someone has a need, they need food, they need clothing. And you say, you know, be filled and warm. And you don't actually provide the things that are needed. Well, you didn't, didn't help. <laughs> and so we can, we can err on both sides. We can just focus on the giving of the food and the clothing and forget about the gospel. Or we can just give the gospel and, oh, bless you, and send the person on their way with an empty belly and no means of providing for themselves. We, we, we're instructed to do both. <laughs> Do one, but don't leave the other undone. Verse 40 is where I was looking for in, in Matthew 25. It says, The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. You know there's more in Scripture telling us to live like that towards the brethren, to other believers? 1 John, or the, the three epistles of John, talk about this is how they'll know that we're Christians, is by our love one for another. <laughs> it's not by our good deeds in the world, giving food to the drug addicts and handing out money and shelter to these lost people that are destined for hell and never giving them the gospel, but just taking care of their physical needs. That's not what it's described. It says, if by our love one for another is how they'll know that we're a Christian. A couple in 3 John and 2 John, if you want to follow me there. Yes, I know that's a backwards order. 3 John, chapter 1. There is only chapter 1. Verse 5 and 6. Says, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. But mention, see, he mentions doing faithfully 
to the brethren, and the brethren comes first, and to strangers. So don't exclude the strangers, but it's to the brethren first. And it's that you've borne witness as, along with the good deeds. Second John, probably back a page in your Bible. I'll just read a couple of different verses here. I'll start in verse 4. It says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that ye have heard from the beginning, that ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. We'll go back, go down a couple of verses. Verse 10 and 11 says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. And if we dig into that just a little bit, we're talking, it starts off talking about children walking in truth. And then in verse 5, the commandment that we love one another. And in verse 6, he kind of starts to define it. This is love that we walk after his commandments. And then knowing how terrible we are at coming up with our own version of what those commandments are, he decides to to define what the commandment is. (laughs) This is the commandment. As you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And then, this is kind of an inadvertent way of describing what that commandment is, because he talks about the deceivers, that confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's, it's the faith in Christ, (laughs) believing that God has come in the flesh and paid for our sin on the cross. That's the obedience of the command, and that's where the love comes from. It's like there's no greater love than a man should give his life for his friends, right? And that's exactly what Christ did for us. And we're to walk after that. <laughs> and we're to express love through that kind of sacrificing. But when we get to verse 10 and 11. There's a warning. If there come any of you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. Which doctrine? That Christ has come in the flesh. Neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So if if you're doing these things, giving food, giving clothing, shelter, helping in whatever way people need help. And this is to the lost world, to the drug addicts downtown, to the drunks and and whatever. People who have no care or thought of God and Christ, who don't hold to the doctrine of salvation. And you just bless them with stuff. And say, God bless you. Have a great day says you're taking part in their sin. 
you are partaker of his evil deeds. You haven't helped the person. You're just helping them carry on in their sin. We have such a hard time. Sometimes you go downtown, there's all these people with their hand out asking for money. You can't drive out of a, the Home Depot parking lot in, in, without... There's like a rotation of a shift. If these people were as dedicated to a job as they are to that shift rotation of standing at that intersection asking for money, they'd be fine. But often, you, you take pity on those people, right? It's like, they stand there all day. It's like, yeah, I'm sure they're hungry, they're tired, they're sore, they're cold, they're hot. And you, you have pity on them and you want to, to be a blessing to them. But if you do nothing but hand them some money and say, God bless you, you're taking part in their evil. You're providing the ability for them to go buy drugs or alcohol, whatever. They might go buy some food, but you still haven't really benefited them beyond that physical need. You ought to at least give the gospel when you're doing that. Use the opportunity of if you're going to bless them with something physical, at very least, give them a gospel tract or, or a verbal witness of, do you know Christ? Right? At least that. Last week, we talked about using our talents for God's glory and mentioned in Titus 2.14 tells us that we're to be a people zealous of good works. We should be looking for opportunities to demonstrate God's love to people. And there's some other passages that give us some instruction for that. Let's look at a couple of them. Romans chapter 15. Read the first uh, few verses here. Romans 15 says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, it started off we that are strong not to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves, that everyone please his neighbor. But you got to notice that there's a requirement attached with that, and it's for his good to edification. And it carries on and it talks about the scriptures that are written for our learning, that we can have hope in those things. It says, that the God of patience and consolation grant that ye be like-minded one towards another, 
you have to glorify God in the things that you're doing as you're helping others, must always point them to Christ. That's the reason. At least give them, here's why I do this. is because Christ gave his life for us and he's asking us to, to sacrifice and give our lives for others. That the strong bear the infirmities of the weak. That we, we take care of those that we're able to take care of. And there's one more passage in Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read a fair bit of this one, starting starting at the beginning of the chapter. I'll read down to verse 16. So Hebrews 13, verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therewith. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts which blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks in his name, sorry, to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And I want to just briefly look at a few of the points in here. We like the verse. The second verse, two in that chapter. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. That sounds nice, (laughs) right? It makes us feel good that that lunatic that we picked up on the road and took home and fed, maybe he was an angel. (laughs) Sometimes you wonder. (laughs) But you you just don't know. And I've talk to people and they've seen someone and as they pass by think 
and like, I need to do something for that person. And sometimes I go back to do something for that person. That person's gone. Like, instantly gone. Nowhere to be seen. And it makes you want, like, is that God placing, is that an angel, or just God putting that person to, are you going to do what I'm telling you to do for that person right now? <laughs> and sometimes we miss those opportunities. And so, perhaps, there's times when we do ministry unto an angel, unaware, completely, just by being obedient to that prompting of God in our, in our heart and our mind when we see that person that needs something. Verse 5 gives us something to think about. It says, let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. Man, that's hard, isn't it? <laughs> Do you ever open your... It's not even talking about verbal conversation, I don't believe. Conversation just refers to like how we live life, how we interact with people. And let that be without covetousness. But I don't think we can't even open our mouths half the time without saying how nice something is of somebody else's. You know what that really is? is it's in our heart. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's usually us wishing we had something as nice as what they have. <laughs> it says, be content with such things as you have. Stop looking to, to gain more. I am talking to myself as much as anybody. I like new things. It doesn't even have to be new, new, just new to me. We like to collect things, like a new rifle. <laughs> right? Like, whatever. I'll use that. Sure, I will. Do I need it? No. Be content with such things as you have. And you know, if we were like that, if we, if we were content with what we have, then we have enough to sustain ourselves. Man, we'd have a lot to be able to give to others, wouldn't we? I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I've heard if you make more than $30,000 in a year, you are the top 1% of the world as far as income goes. You are the top 1%. And we think that we're poor because I can't afford the second car <laughs> or the six-bedroom house or the hundred-acre lot. Like, <laughs> we, we have such a bent view of needs where we live that we have no concept of how simple we could and probably should be living. And some of us are trying to move toward that and ends up costing us more money to, to accomplish those things. Like, that's weird. Because <laughs> we want a certain standard when we move to that simplicity, right? Be content with such things as you have. Like, just like, well, once you have enough to survive, just stop there. <laughs> and then let the rest be used for God's glory and to bless other people. That's really what he's trying to get at here. 
But then we get caught up in this thing. We go to church and we start to study and we read some passage and you get to verse 9. It says, be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. Uh, We get tied up in some of this stuff, right? We get so bogged down in some unimportant detail of scripture that doesn't even apply to, to us and that will be revealed in God's time. Like this Matthew 25 thing. Who exactly is being talked to and what are their roles during the millennial kingdom? And Does that affect? Does, does my digging into those details improve my ability to function as a Christian and to minister the gospel today? It's not that the things aren't important to study. It's not that it's wrong to, to dig in and it's in his word, we're supposed to do that, but if we if we get bogged down in some strange doctrine, diverse and strange doctrine, we can end up not being any good to anybody. Because that's our focus, is that one thing. And he, he points out, probably very rightly so, not with meats which have profited them that have been which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. And this whole thing with what we eat, what we put in our mouth, has been such a big deal for all of history, apparently. Is it clean? Is it unclean? Should you eat this or should you eat that? And what's healthy and what's not healthy? And we create these doctrines and we try teaching others what they ought to be doing over these unimportant issues that just leave it alone. <laughs> See what the rest of Scripture says. Like it's, it's not that important. Go to Romans 14 and see, see what God's view on some of this stuff is like. It's not important. <laughs> Stop focusing on the wrong details. Start focusing on what does God want me to live like? What, what should my life look like for Christ? And how can I get the gospel to those that need to hear it? Verse 13 and 14 moves us in that direction. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. Here's our camp. Get out there. Bearing his reproach. Meaning, let people know that you're a Christian, that you believe that Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, is actually God's son was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, and that was wrongly crucified on a cross. And somehow that took my place, removed my penalty for my sin from an eternity in hell just by believing that that was true. Well, what kind of a nutcase would believe that? Well, that's us, and that's we're going to bear the reproach of Christ for proclaiming such a foolish, simple... Well, you think you can just believe that and carry on sinning? Well, it's technically yes, but that's never going to be the attitude of the person that believes it, is it? It's always the way it comes to you. It's like, do we carry on sinning? That grace may abound? God forbid! Why, why would you go that route? That's, if, if Christ died for me that, to pay for my sin, like... Wow, I need to, I need to stop doing those things that put him there, 
and be grateful that he did it. And then we're down to verse 16. It says, But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. To do good and to communicate. It's the whole, sums up everything I'm trying to say this morning. Do good and communicate. Don't forget to do the good and don't forget to communicate the gospel. That's it. And notice that it actually says, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Living a life like that is a sacrifice. Denying ourselves and the, the wants that we have is a sacrifice. Letting people mock us for our faith is a sacrifice. These are things that please God. It's what God wants of his people. Let's pray. Lord, that we would understand that it's not our good works that we are going to be judged by as entry or into heaven or, or hell, but by our faith in Christ and whether we believed that that was, that Christ was the Son of God, that he did die on the cross for my sins, Lord. If I put my complete faith and trust in that alone is what I'll be judged on to enter into heaven, Lord, but Help us to understand that, but also to realize that you're instructing us to do those good works, to take care of the needy, to provide for those needs, and, and as we do that, to communicate the gospel so that others will have the same opportunity that we've had, Lord. Help us to, to understand that. Help us to do that, to live that life, Lord. We pray in Christ's name.